You're listening to a message from Doxa Church on the book of Daniel, which we believe has more relevance for the church than ever before, as Christians face the challenge to not just survive, but thrive as God's people in a changing world. For more resources, visit doxa-church.com. Isn't that encouraging? So good. Well, we need some encouraging news, don't you think? I mean, this was a kind of a hard week, uh, I would say. You know, while we were gathering, 26 people in Sutherland, Texas lost their lives last week. And then on Monday, eight were killed in New York City. Uh, it's, it, you can get pretty discouraged if you keep watching the news. There's days when I just want to go, I don't want to watch the news anymore. And, uh, and then even think in this last century, over 45 million Christians lost their lives uh, being martyred for their faith. Over 45 million it's a lot, of, a lot of loss, and we, it just kind of keeps reminding us we live in a broken world. It's a hard place to be at times when we're longing for the future return of our king, when Jesus will make all things new, and we live in that in-between, and we know that there's hope, and God gives us hope, uh, and our world needs hope. And I could imagine for Israel, after what they went through, being driven out of their land in Jerusalem, having their city destroyed and the temple decimated, many of their family members killed, now being in exile for almost 70 years, it would be easy to lose hope. But it's been 70 years, and that's important. Those of you who know the story of Israel in exile, 70 years is very important. In Daniel 9, verse 1, we read... In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus by descent, Amid, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely, say it with me, 70 years. So Daniel has been in Babylon for almost 70 years. He's doing his math. And he's reading Jeremiah, likely Jeremiah 25, verse 11 and 12. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste." If you've been with us over these weeks going through Daniel, Daniel, you'll remember that God put to death the Babylonian king and handed the, the kingdom over to the Medes and the Persians. So Daniel's got that in his mind. He knows the 70 years are almost up and God said he would do this. He would punish the king and he would bring the people back. However, Daniel also knew that it would not be an automatic return for his people. In the same chapter in Leviticus where God spelled out the punishment for his people if they did not walk in obedience to his ways, if they did not live out the covenant 
nature of being his people set apart for his purpose, which we now know when we look at the New Testament, God set apart Israel to be a display people of what God is like to the nations, and they failed to do that. And in that same chapter where he talked to them about the punishment for their disobedience, we read this, Leviticus 26, 40 and 42. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers in their treachery that they have committed against me, and also walking contrary to me. And that's a phrase you're going to want to remember this, this morning, walking contrary to me. In other words, not walking like me or in my ways. Verse 42, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob, and I will remember my covenant with Isaac, and my covenant with Abraham, and I will remember the land. To go home, they would need to confess to God their sins. I want to stop and make a brief comment here. For many of us, if we're not careful, when we talk about the nature of the sovereignty of God, that is that concept that God is sovereignly in control over all things and nothing in all of history will thwart his purposes, we can talk about it oftentimes in a way that leads to a distortion of it, a way that almost writes off our behavior as though our behavior doesn't matter whatsoever. We say, God's in control, he'll do what he wants regardless. And unfortunately for some of us, that says, what we do doesn't matter. That's a wrong reading of the scriptures. If Daniel read it that way, he would say, well, it's been 70 years. God promised to bring us home. He's going to do that regardless whether we confess our sins or not, because that's what he said he would do. Let's start packing. That's not what he does. He knows that there's a right response. And I just want to pause and say, if we're not careful, we might say the same thing, saying God is the one who saves, which he is. We aren't the authors of salvation, which we are not. But because he's going to save, it doesn't really matter what we do. We don't have to tell anybody about Jesus. They'll all just come to faith because God will make sure it happens. And yet you read the Apostle Paul rhetorically ask the question, how are they going to hear unless someone's preaching? So don't write off human responsibility in light of your... uh, confidence in God's sovereignty. God's sovereign will is to bring about the salvations of souls through you and I sharing the gospel. And in our text today, we see what Justin has been talking about of those two screens, the transcendent screen of God's activity in the heavenly realms and the imminent screen of our activity in the everyday life coming together. They're not separated. They're not inter, they're not, they are interrelated. They're not disconnected. Uh, So I want us to ask, what, God, would you call us to do in light of our brokenness, our sin, the brokenness of the church, the brokenness in the world? And we can learn, I think, from Daniel about what it looks like to confess while in exile. And what's important is that I believe God moved Daniel in his sovereignty to pray. And God's going to move some of you today to confess in new ways what he's done Then I turned my face to the Lord God, verse 3, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession. What does he confess? O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Notice Daniel doesn't start with confessing his sin. Instead, he starts with confessing God's character, who God is, what God has done, 
And what I want us to get today is that confession starts with God's character and activity, not with ourselves, not with our sin. And this is really important because you and I can't see and understand the reality of our sin apart from a right view of who God is and what God has done. In other words, we won't rightly confess our sin until we rightly see and confess who God is. The Apostle Paul helps us understand the nature of sin in his letter to the Romans in Romans chapter 3, verse 23. He says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The glory of God is the reality of God, the truth of God, the true nature of God. What is Paul saying? He's saying sin isn't just doing bad things. Sin is any way in which we fail to be like God in our thoughts, our motives, our actions, or our words. Let me say that again. Sin is not just doing bad things. Sin is any way in which we fail, fall short of the glory of God, fail to be like God in our thoughts, our motives, our actions, or our words. And I'm not talking only about the things that we do, which theologians call the sins of commission, the bad behaviors we engage in. I'm also talking about the things we fail to do, which are the, the sins of omission. We both do things that are not like God and we fail to do things that are, are, that are like God. And in our action and doing things that are not like God, we commit sin. And when we fail to do things that are like God, we are living in what are called sins of omission. We're failing to be like God actively in the world. See, God created you and I to be his image bearers, to display the truth of what he is like. In other words, you and I are self-portraits of the living God. Now, you all have been painted a little differently. Thank God for that. We don't all just look the same. Some of you were painted like a Picasso. Sorry. No, just kidding. That was a joke. It just depends on what season he was in, right, of his life. Some of you are pa painted like Monet. Some of you are going, I don't like impressionist art. And so I, choose your artist, whatever it may be. The truth is all of you were painted by God. Psalm 139 says that God knit us together in our mother's wombs. He designed you on purpose for a purpose which should also cause us to back up and say, do we actually treat all humans like self-portraits of God? Do we honor his artwork in the way we treat one another? And unfortunately, sin that we've both been born into as well as what has been done to us, leading us to both respond in broken ways as well as choose actively to disobey God, all of those things have kind of marred and distorted and torn up the portrait that we are a bit. We aren't all fully the picture that God intends us to be, but he is at work in us, making us into what he wants us to be. And, and what's really important when we understand sin as falling short of the glory of God, as failing to be the self-portrait he made us to be, as failing to tell the truth of what God's really like and what God's really done, when we understand it as that, then we understand that when we confess our sin, we have to start with the nature and character of God and what he's done in order to rightly know how to confess what we have not done or how we have fallen short. In other words, let's hear it this way. All sin is ultimately against God because all sin is a way of rebelling against God, of not telling the truth about God, of not living the life God meant us to live. David, in his psalm, Psalm 51, which is a great psalm to read if you're working through some of the stuff that this might stir up today for you. He, after having an affair and then ensuring that the woman's husband dies because she's pregnant with David's baby, 
So now you got David, an adult, the king, an adulterer and a murderer, writes this psalm, Psalm 51. And in it, at one point, he says, against you, you only have I sinned. That's quite a statement for a man who just committed adultery and had a man killed. To say, ultimately, it's against you and you only that I have sinned. And what is God saying? He's saying, fundamentally, sin is connected to whoever your God is. And when you don't submit and obey that God or reflect that God, you are sinning. And for me, David, God, I've sinned against you by telling a lie about what you're like because I took advantage of a woman for my own purposes and I killed her husband for my own selfish greed. And so I've told a lie about you. I've sinned against you, God. Now, unfortunately, in our culture, many of you have adopted a different God. And, and cultural sin is when, when culture says, this is the standard by which we all must live, and we all set a particular kind of God-like power or quality to that standard. In our case, it's, it's a radical self-expression in our culture, that the highest good or God is you. And as long as you get to do what you want to do, that's good as long as nobody stops you from doing it. And in that sense, sin in our culture is anybody keeping you from doing what you want. See how that works? So then people want you to confess that sin to the cultural God. And, and God is saying, I'm the God of gods. I am the Lord of lords. I am the one who made myself known through Jesus Christ so that you might all know what I'm really like, what my character and nature is like, so that when you confess your sin, you'd confess it next to what I'm like. Not anything lesser, not anything distorted. Let me be your standard, because I made you in my image for a purpose. So Daniel starts his confession saying, this is, this is about who God is. It's about what God has done. If you read through Daniel 9, you'll see it over and over and over again. God, you are this. You've done that. And we have sinned. Consider how we would confess differently if we started with God. If we really believe confession doesn't begin with us, but begins with him, what he's done and who he is, it might sound something like this. God, you are loving and you have greatly loved us. You've loved us so much you sent your only son who willingly gave his life in our place. While we were enemies of God, you treated us like dearly loved children. And yet, we have been unloving to others. We do not love like you do. We have sinned against you and not told the truth about what you are like as a loving God. God, you are hospitable and have welcomed us into your family and your home. Though we were strangers, though we were enemies, you paid the cost of cleaning us up and making us ready to be your kids. You brought us into your home that we keep destroying and yet you keep welcoming us in. You keep loving us. You don't discard us. You made a place for us even though we were strangers, sojourners. Yet we have been inhospitable and we've closed our lives and our doors and our tables to our neighbors, to immigrants amongst us, to those who don't have family. We have sinned against you, God, and not told the truth of what you're like as the God who welcomes in the stranger. God, you are merciful and forgiving and showing us great mercy and forgiving us of our sins, no matter how great they were. Yet we have been unmerciful and prefer people get what they deserve instead of mercy. As a result, we've withheld forgiveness we sinned against you, God, by telling a lie that you are not merciful, that you are not forgiving. 
This week, our staff took a time of confession in light of this passage. We walked through it together, and I found myself confessing, God, you are Emmanuel, God who is with us, God who is present. God, I have not been with my staff or this church as much as I know I'm called to. I haven't been as present as I need to be. And for that, Father, I ask your forgiveness because my sin against you hurts others. And I say that to you too, church, as I've been walking through with the elders recently, they gently rebuked me and said, we need you here more. And so I'm trying to shut down as many travel opportunities in the next year as possible to be more present. Why? Because I want to honor him. I want you to see a picture of what he's like by me being present. I'm going to fall short. But I confess that to him in front of you because I want to honor him. Maybe today you're going to say, God, there's areas of my life that now I know what you're like and I know what you've done, but I don't look at all like what you are like or what you've done. I want to confess who you are and what you've done and then confess where I've fallen short of your glory, showing the truth of what you're like. But here's the thing that's important. Don't miss this. Daniel doesn't just frame up his confession with who God is and what he's done so that he might rightly understand the nature of sin. He also frames it up so that he might rightly understand the nature of a God who you can approach when you sin with boldness. Verse seven, to you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us, open shame. Nine, to you, the Lord our God, belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him. A bold confession and full assurance of who God is and what he's done for you doesn't just lead to a right response in confessing our sin, but it is the prerequisite to a true and bold confession of our sin. It's the prerequisite. You won't approach God boldly with a clear and truthful confession of where you've fallen short unless you actually believe that he's forgiving, that you actually believe he's merciful, that you actually believe he's for you and not against you. See, God's character frees you and I to confess. He's not up there going, man, I can't wait to crush them all. He's saying, I can't wait to save them all. He's not saying I'm wanting to condemn. He's saying I, I want them to understand mercy. I want them to understand grace. I want them to understand that I'm for them and not against them. And if you can't have a clearer picture of that, you just, you've missed looking at Jesus. God is so for you and wanting you to confess your sin with absolute confidence in his character to forgive you of your sin. That he is merciful and forgiving. If you're having a hard time confessing your sin, maybe it's because you don't yet know how gracious and loving he is. Maybe you don't understand his mercy. You'll notice that Daniel is so confident in the mercy of God and in the grace of God and the love of God that Daniel doesn't just confess with eyes and me's, but he confesses with we and us. He's willing to embrace the totality of Israel's sin personally. Maybe if you read through it, you'll see like at least 10 we's and 10 us's as he confesses sin, as he identifies with Israel in the confession. He doesn't distance himself from them. He doesn't blame them. He doesn't go like, God, you know, they're really bad, but I'm pretty good, man. I'm the guy who went to the lion's den for you, God. There's none of that in his confession. 
He's fully embracing his participation with all of Israel. And the reason why is because he knows he doesn't have to defend himself. He has a defender in God himself. And this might be hard for us as Westerners to understand that you would confess on behalf of a people. That we would confess collectively that this country struggles with racism and we've sinned. Maybe hard for you to understand. You go, I didn't, but you belong to this country. You know how many times I've traveled and people go, man, your guys' this country is a mess. And you know what I do? I don't go, you're right, they're all a bunch of, mm, you know, like, I'm so glad I'm not there. I'm in Switzerland or Germany or wherever it may be. Like, I'm not them in the moment. No, I say, you're right, we are. We're broken. We need help. We're selfish. We have, I could go through all kinds of things that I'd say, we have to confess as a country. You know, sometimes I do that on behalf of the church. When I meet someone, maybe you're here, who's been deeply hurt by the church or doesn't feel like there's a place for them in the church or still checking out the faith and you see the reputation of the church over the years and you go, man, what's wrong with you people? And I want to stand up and go, and I've done this many times, I'm so sorry that we have sinned. I'm so sorry that we have fallen short of what God is like and the way we've treated people. I'm so sorry for the way people have been wounded by the church. I'm so sorry. But the reason why I can say that is because I know it doesn't change who God is at all. God is still loving. God is still for the outsider. God is still gracious and merciful. My behavior doesn't change who he is, but it, my lack of behavior requires me to confess who he is. The number of times God shows me my own brokenness and sin so that I might boast in him so that I might have confidence not in my behavior, but in his. Because see, my confidence and my confession must be based not on me, but on him and his character. Daniel doesn't mince words here. He has no problem saying, we sinned, we've done wrong, we acted wickedly, we rebelled, we didn't follow your commands, we didn't listen. Verse 11, all Israel, he says, all Israel, sounds a little bit like Paul in Romans 3, all have sinned and fallen short. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside. Dan doesn't go like, most have, or everybody except me, he goes, all, refusing to obey your voice. And the curse and the oath that are written in the law of Moses is referring to Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 where God lays out how they should live and when they don't obey him and walk in his ways and show the truth about what he's like, what kind of punishment will happen. He says, the curse and the oath that are written there, the servant of, the, of God, Moses, have been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. He confirmed his words which he spoke against us and against our rulers who ruled us by bringing upon us a great calamity for under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept this calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. Daniel's going, Lord, you're right, we're wrong. Your judgment is correct, we deserve the punishment we've received. The shame of our land lying desolate, the shame of our city being destroyed, the shame of the temple decimated, the shame of your people being scattered, it's because of what we've done. You warned us of the penalty of sin, and we rebelled against you regardless. 
We deserve this. You are righteous. And yet, in the midst of his confession, Daniel also knows that not only is God righteous and just, but he's merciful and forgiving. Because God's a covenant God committed to his people. So Daniel continues, verse 17, Now therefore, O God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to please, to the pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear, open your eyes and see our desolations in the city that's called by your name. For we do not present our pleas for you because we are righteous, because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, oh my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Notice what Daniel doesn't do. He doesn't go, God, we're trying our best. We're really sorry this time. Come on, for our sake, so that we could have our land back, so we could have our homes back, so that life could go the way we want. He doesn't appeal to himself at all. He appeals to God. He says, for your sake, for the sake of your city, which is called by your name, for the sake of your own people who are called by your name. Do this for your glory, God. This is not about us. We don't confess so that we might get something. We confess so that he might get something. We confess because it's about him. Please hear this. Confession is not about you. It's about God. It's about his renown. It's about his fame. And you might go, how, do, how, does, how does confessing the ways we've fallen short glorify God? Doesn't that undermine him? No. When you say, here's how I failed to be what God is like, you're saying God is like this and I have not been. And second, my ability to confess with boldness and not shrink back is my way of saying that's how merciful he is because I don't have to pretend. I don't have to hide. I don't have to cover up. I don't have to act like I have it all together. I can stand before you and go, I am desperately in need of mercy. And I know the God of all mercy. I am desperately in need of grace. And I know the God of all grace. I am desperately in need of forgiveness. And I know the God of all forgiveness. Several years ago, I was meeting in Wenatchee, training some leaders, and one of the families came up to me afterwards and said, hey, we're, you know, we're, part, we're homeschooling our kids, and, and we've been, this is not a knock on homeschooling. Please don't get that, okay? I think it's a great thing. Um, and and they, they went on and said, um, you know, we, we, we kind of protected our family from all the neighbors because the neighbors, didn't, they don't believe what we believe, and we don't want our kids to be around it, and, and they confessed to me that they'd kind of lived almost like a gated life or just kind of protecting our kids from the world. And, and as, as they were saying it, they said, we really believe we've sinned because we have not told our neighbors the truth about what God's like, that he opened up the gates, that he opened up his life, that he opened up the home, that we could come in. And we have not done that to any of our neighbors. And we've been deeply convicted that we've done this out of fear, not out of faith. We haven't done this as an act of obedience to God, but rather as an act of fear of the world. And I said, what do you think you're going to do? And they said, we don't know. What do we do? <laughs> I said, well, what do you think the Spirit's leading you to do? And they said, well, we think we should probably tell everybody we're sorry. But like, we don't want to then like make that a bad witness. I said, you've already been a bad witness. It's okay. <laughs> 
It'd be a great witness for you to go and tell them that you believe in a God of grace and mercy by your willingness to confess where you've fallen short to show them what he's like. And so they determined that they were gonna actually have a party, a confession party, where they said out loud with all their neighbors over around a party, our God is like this and we have not been like this and we wanna ask you to forgive us for the ways in which we failed to show the truth of what our God is like to you. I visited them a year later. I said, how'd the party go? And they said, people were so gracious. And now we're like getting together and having parties. It's like a normal activity in our neighborhood. Like what were we so afraid of before? Somebody else had been their God for a season there, hadn't they? A God that in some ways we believed isn't, can't help us, can't protect us, can't control. Can't, I mean, the story that I heard up here on the stage, I was like, that's, that's what God wants for all of us is to have our, our lives open and say, God, show the world what you're like through us. Let our kids be discipled in a home that sees you work through their parents in such a way that families or classmates get to see Jesus through us. Broken people who are not afraid to admit where we failed because we have a merciful God. And when we, when we confess out loud what God's like and we confess out loud where we've fallen short, we actually confess out loud again. We believe he's merciful and gracious enough for us to confess. And that makes him look good. See, half of the world is concerned, scared to death. Like, if God really knew me, what would he think of me? And can I actually get near him? If he's holy like you say he is, then I don't want anywhere near him. I remember one woman told me she'd never want to come into the door of a church because she thought she would catch on fire when she walked in. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like, this is the refuge from the fire. This is the safest place on the planet. It should be. It should be where you get to come in and God goes, I am so for you and I'm with you and regardless of what you've done, I will not reject you because my son was rejected in your place so that you might be accepted through Christ. Amen? Let's boast in our brokenness. Let's not pretend we're, we got it all together. Come on. The world doesn't need a facade. They need a confessing people. A people who will not shrink back from saying how great our God is and how greatly in need we are of his grace. And notice how quickly God responds. I love it. I mean, just, he says, it's not because of me, God, it's because of you. It's not because of us. It's for your name's sake. And listen to what happens. Verse 20, while I was speaking, that's so cool. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking, he says it again in prayer, the man Gabriel whom I had seen in the vision at the first came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Don't you love how immediate God's response is to, to Daniel's humility? I mean, maybe some of you are here today going, but what if I acknowledge how I'm broken? What if I acknowledge how I need a savior? What if I acknowledge that I've fallen short? Will God stand back and go, mm, I don't know. Keep trying. Grovel a little more. I don't think you understand the nature of how bad it is. Until you do, I'm not gonna. No, no, he's quick. He's ready. I, I love I love the, the psalmist, David, in Psalm 51, which I referenced earlier. He says, God, a contrite and broken heart you will not despise. He goes on to say, you didn't want another sacrifice or another offering. You just wanted me. You wanted my heart. You wanted me to humbly come before you and tell you how badly I was in need of grace. See, family, I want to make sure it's clear. God doesn't need your song. He doesn't need your giving. He doesn't need your church attendance. He doesn't need your missional living. He, he, he wants your heart. 
I want to encourage you, if you come in here every Sunday going, I'm just trying to give him my best and do my best. You know what? He doesn't need another song. He doesn't need another worship service. He doesn't need another giver. He wants you to come in and go, I just need you. And if all you're trying to do is give him something other than your broken, contrite heart, you're using religion as a way to keep a distance between you and God. Instead of realizing God's going, just clear all that. I want you. Come into this place and say, God is amongst us. God is for us. God has done everything to forgive us. God is merciful and gracious and loving. And I, apart from him, am desperate in need of salvation and forgiveness and grace. And without him, I am hopeless. So my best song and my best offering and my best service means nothing unless I get that. And if I get that, then I come here and here, in here and I go, I can't wait to sing another song to my gracious and merciful God. I can't wait to proclaim what he's done. My confession always starts with him and what he's done before it gets to me because I'm so impressed with God that I become really small. Even my sin becomes really small in comparison to the great mercy and grace of God. Amen? So God responds immediately. And at verse 22, it says, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out and I have come to tell it to you. For you are greatly loved. Man, if you underline your Bibles, you better underline and circle and star and highlight and do everything you can to never miss that phrase again. You are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Before we get to the word and the vision, I just want to just pause there. As soon as Daniel cries out for mercy, what does he hear? You are greatly loved. You know, one of the first things the Spirit of God will whisper to your heart as you welcome him into your life, I love you. Romans 8, anyone who belongs to Christ has the spirit of Christ by which we might be able to cry out, Daddy, Abba, Father. For some of you, that stirs up not great imagery or emotion because your earthly father has fallen short of the glory of God. But Jesus did not. He said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And now Jesus becomes the perfect picture of what the Heavenly Father is like. And when you know the love of God through the pure, beautiful picture of Jesus as the representation of God the Father to you, and you hear the Spirit of God say, you get to call God your daddy. And God your daddy's going, I love you. I want to heal you of all the ways in which your earthly fathers fail. I want to heal you from all the ways the world fails. I want to heal you from all the ways you fail. I want you to know I love you. And that's where it starts. As soon as Daniel acknowledges he desperately needs mercy, he gets love. I love that God doesn't go, okay, now let's rehearse the list of all the ways that Israel failed. He now gives them a word of hope. 
Not only are you dearly loved, but let me tell you what I'm going to do to rescue you, to save you. God's response is not shaming condemnation. He doesn't pile on more guilt. He isn't raging in anger. He is full of mercy and love. Family, God loves you. He loves you. And then he shares the word. Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. The summation of what 70 weeks means, by the way, is 77s. So I won't get into all the numerology and all that, but in, in the Bible, seven is the number of completion, 10 is the number of perfection. So seven times 10 is 70, so it's the number of completion and perfection, times seven, which is 490 years, okay? Now, anybody remember anybody asking a question about how many times we should forgive? Who was that? Peter. Jesus, how many times do we forgive somebody? Jesus' answer to Peter is what? 70 times 7. What is that? 490. What is that? Jesus is going like, keep count, and once it hits 490, 491, you're done. No, 490 was a number of perfect completion, an unending supply of grace. It's a picture of God's ability to bring to the fullness of time his perfected work. And when he says 490, he's saying, there's going to be a perfect whole completion of the work I'm doing. And then he goes on to describe what he's going to do to finish the transgression. In other words, put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Have any idea what he's talking about? Gabriel then divides the weeks into three periods. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. That's another way of saying a, a relatively short period of time. That word that he's referring to was the word that went out from the king, King Cyrus. As he was praying, King Cyrus delivered a word. And that word was found in Ezra 1, 1 through 4, where the, the Lord stirred up the spirit of the king, Ezra tells us. And he, he sent a herald throughout the kingdom encouraging all the Israelites to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the house of the Lord. Don't you love it that the immediate response of the Lord is, your love, Daniel, king, go do what I tell you to do. Some of us should like start praying that way for our, our country. God, just tell our leaders to do what they're supposed to do. God, tell our governments to do what they're supposed to do. Tell our mayors to do what they're, like if God can move the king of Cyrus to send all of Israel back home and to even dictate that they would rebuild the, the, the temple, let's pray like that. God, move. God, save. God, rescue. And minimally, he's gonna say, I love you. But maximally, he's gonna say, I got really good news in store. I'm gonna move. Then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again with squares and a moat, but in a troubled time. And most scholars would say that's the longer period of time that takes place from the rebuilding of the city to Jesus' day where they suffered great, great suffering under the rule of Alexander the Great, Ptolemies of Egypt, the Seleucids of Syria, and a lot of persecution under Antiochus IV, which was followed by the Roman occupation. So I'm not gonna go through all that. Now let's move forward. 
Verse 26, and after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. Who might that be? Don't you love it that really God's answer to his prayer is Jesus? The anointed one shall be cut off and have nothing. Clear prediction of Jesus Christ and his crucifixion. Isaiah 53, 8 says this, he will be cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. Jesus lost everything for you and me. Jesus was stripped naked, rejected by his friends and companions, abandoned and left alone as he hung on the cross for our sins and cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the people of the prince who's to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, referring to Titus and his destruction of Jerusalem. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. And he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering, and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. If the week, if the beginning of the week is Jesus' birth and the middle of his week is his crucifixion and at the middle of the week he makes a strong covenant. Do you remember Jesus the night he was betrayed with his disciples sharing the Passover meal, the remembrance meal of God delivering his people out of Egypt so they might be a set apart people for his glory, that they would tell the story of God, the Redeemer rescuing them and every time they would tell the story, they would remind the nations that God is also wanting them to experience the same deliverance that they experienced. And the Passover meal was a constant reminder of God's ability to deliver them from the worst situation where they made much of God at that meal. And now Jesus at the Passover meal says, this is my meal. He takes the old covenant and he makes clear that there's a new covenant. And he says, this new covenant is in my blood. It's made with my blood. My blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And he takes what was a remembrance of deliverance from Egypt and now he calls us to remember him, the one who delivers delivers us from our sins. I just want you to think about what that was like for Israel waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting for the anointed one to show up. We we look back and we, we go, yeah, 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 I know. But don't forget what happened. When he died, the temple veil that divided the temple from the holy of holies, the place where God dwelt amongst them, was torn in two. That God ripped it open and said, The way has now been made so that the many might come in and have direct content with the God who forgives, the God who saves. The writer of Hebrews says, Jesus offered up once and for all a sacrifice for sin so that there would never need to be another sacrifice ever again for you and me. He he broke... As it were, that, remember the, the higher screen that Justin talked about, the transcendent nature of God and all of his activity and the lower screen of our imminent reality that we face every day? It's like he said, I'm just gonna break that out and say, you get access, free access to God through Jesus Christ on a daily basis for your need. This last week I put something on Twitter saying, you know, God wants his people to do da 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 I was just quoting some scripture, but someone responded back and said, so you have a direct line with God? And I wanted to go like, of course I do. 
Jesus has made a way for me to go directly to God. I don't have to go through any other mediator. He is the one mediator between man and God. Yes, I do. But I thought that would be foolish because then we'd get into some dumb argument on Twitter and it would just go nowhere, right? So I just said it to myself and I confessed to the Lord, Lord, I'm so thankful that you have made a way that I can boldly come before you without fear because you have died on the cross for my sins. You have made me pure and holy before God so I don't ever have to be afraid to come approach you ever again. Isn't that good news? I mean, you don't have to walk in fear that God is against you. Jesus said, I did not come to condemn the world, but to save the world. And we're still on the end. That final week is not done, is it? He says there's gonna be this glorious city and we know that Revelation tells us that there one day will be Jerusalem coming down from heaven. A holy city prepared by God like a beautifully adorned bride for her husband. We long for that day. What do we do until then? We ask God, will you help us to be a picture of that Jerusalem? So you said, this city that's called by your name, what does that mean? It was called Zion, the city of Zion. Jerusalem is the city of peace, a place of shalom where everything is as it ought to be and everything between us and God is made right. Jerusalem was meant to be the place where the nations could come and see what life with God looks like and how relationship with God could be restored. Church, that's us today. As we look forward to a future Jerusalem, we live in the, in, in the longing for that. And we say, God, would you help us to be a picture of what you're like to the world and would you forgive us for the ways we fall short and we'll start by confessing you, not us. Because this is not about us. This is about you. And Paul says, the word is near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. I love what Jessica said. It's like God will just give you the words. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, notice he doesn't say, because if you confess your sins, that's gonna come, but he starts with confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one is confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Is that your confession, family? Do you confess, Jesus is Lord. He is my God. He is the one I submit to. He's the one I serve. And I believe God raised him from the dead, so I'll say out loud, sin, Satan, and self will not have victory. Jesus will. And then John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Family, my desired response for us today would be, God, we confess that you are good and have done good things. And we have fallen short of showing the world what you're like. So in your mercy and grace, would you be good to us once again and remind us that we're forgiven and would you make us be a good people for the world? Amen? Let's pray. I want you just to take a moment to confess who God is, what he's done, and how you may have fallen short with full assurance that in Christ you receive forgiveness.
you are a great and awesome God, full of mercy and loving kindness, full of grace and ready to forgive, eager to accept the heart that is contrite and broken before you. And so we come, Lord, with humble hearts saying, receive us, forgive us, heal us, change us. For your name's sake and for the good of this city and for even the good of our own lives, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.